to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And this is the prologue on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren. Welcome and thank each of you for listening. Our guest today is historian and a talented author. He brings us the story of a man who stood by his beliefs and broke and spoke out about them. A man history has all but forgotten, even though he had been a crucial part of the dedication ceremony for Gettysburg Soldiers Cemetery on November 19th of 1863. Now, before we bring our guest on, please allow me to recognize two very special groups of listeners that we at America's Web Radio are proud to have. Those members of our armed forces who are stationed around the world and who work hard every day to keep us safe back here at home. We also want to mention our first responders here in our local communities, those police, fire, and rescue personnel, the brave men and women who rush to our aid when we need our, their help. Thanks to each of you for what you do, and thank all of you for being listeners. Today's guest is David T. Dixon. His book is a story of events and circumstances leading up to that November day and the finding of that long-lost oration after it was disregarded for some 150 years. His book is The Lost Gettysburg Address, and this is your prologue. Four score and seven years ago. If that opening line doesn't mean anything to you, well, quite frankly, it should. The flowery reference could easily have been stated as 87 years ago. But would it have had the same impact? Lincoln's address at the dedication of the Gettysburg Soldiers Cemetery is agreed to be one of the greatest speeches ever given. Its powerful message, amplified by its brevity, spoke to a nation still at war with itself. Legend has it that the final draft was written on an envelope while en route to the cemetery. Its spontaneous appeal has had a lasting impact. But was it truly spontaneous? Three men actually spoke that day. The first speaker chosen was known to be deliberate and educational in his words and would draw on the audience's sympathy. The perfect setup for Lincoln's address that would be totally inspirational. There was a third speech that day, one that picked up on the emotions stirred by Edward Everett and then, of course, Abraham Lincoln. Words intended to agitate the already impassioned crowd, a speech that called for action. With us today from Santa Barbara, California, is David T. Dixon. How are you this morning, sir? Welcome to I'm the great, program. Doug. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're very proud to have you on. David, the Gettysburg Address, and it is known to, as it is known today, was quite an anomaly from other famous speeches, particularly in that period of time. The norm was no considerably longer than the 272-word offering by Abraham Lincoln. Is that correct? That's right, Doug. Uh, the typical speech uh, in those days was at least an hour, and Everett's speech was two hours long. Uh, Everett delivered it uh, from memory, and so the the public uh, at the ceremony was quite shocked to to hear such a short uh, address, and, and some of the folks actually in the confusion uh, missed much of the speech because it was over before uh, they knew what was going on. Another oddity, uh, I would think, is that people knew the president would be there, and yet he was not the key, keynote speaker. Uh, 
Everett actually was the keynote speaker. Was that unusual for such a ceremony? No, uh, the uh, the ceremony was actually put off for a month uh, by David Wills, who was the person that organized the uh, Gettysburg dedication. And the reason it was delayed for a month was because he specifically wanted to have Everett as a keynote speaker. Everett was a specialist, if you will, in uh, battlefield memorials and was also, I would say, the most celebrated orator uh, of that time. They say that the crowd, including Lincoln, were, were brought to tears by, uh, by what he had to say that day. Yes, uh, Everett, was, uh, Everett was a very interesting fellow, and, and another fellow that's kind of been lost to history. Uh, he served in many different capacities. He was the governor of Massachusetts, uh, a senator from Massachusetts, secretary of state, uh, president of Harvard University, an ordained minister, I, I could go on and on. So this was uh, truly a Renaissance man who had the public speaking skills of of a uh, of a professional actor. So uh, he was extremely adept at uh, at uh, manipulating the emotions of his audience. He was the setup man. Well, he was he was he was the feature. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. Well, now that day in 1863 was barely a year before Lincoln's reelection in the midst of that great conflict. So things were a little complicated. Did the concern of the reelection outweigh the stated purpose of the event? No, I, I don't. I don't think it did, Doug. Uh, I do make a strong argument in my book that uh, that really all three speeches need to be considered uh, not only in a memorial context but also in a political context. But, no, I would say, Doug, that the still the major purpose of, of that gathering was to honor, and, uh, honor the soldiers and dedicate the cemetery. Now, as in all other things uh, political, you often find that there are events used for political purposes, and, and uh, I make the argument that this, this uh, dedication was uh, very much a political event in addition to being a, uh, primarily a memorial event. Well, I think that's easy for the reader to come away with. Uh, the order and the content of the three speeches were, uh, in fact, very carefully planned and laid out, maybe not by knowledge of what the speakers would say, but by their reputation, isn't that true? Yeah, I think that's. I think that is true. Uh, while while uh, Lincoln did not commit to being on the program until rather late in the game, uh, I, I think there was a clear understanding uh, among the organizers and the various uh, governors and other delegates to the uh, to the ceremony. That that these speeches did need to accomplish certain purposes, and so the main purpose was to honor and memorialize the soldiers. and And there was no better person to do that than Everett. Uh, and as you mentioned before, uh, Lincoln, I think, took this opportunity to to paint uh, a picture of what the post war Union uh, would look like, and kind of raise the the war, if you will, to a higher moral plane. And then, as you as you told your listeners earlier, 
Anderson was was uh, was the final act, and basically the message was, uh, we still have a war going on. Let's get back to work and let's finish the job. Absolutely. In fact, Charles Anderson, who we're speaking of, Lincoln considered him to be critical to the preservation of the Union. Why was that? Well, I think it, I think it was a little broader than just Anderson. I think the the whole idea of the Southern Union man was something that Lincoln felt was was critical to the Union. Uh, there were many Union supporters in the South in the years leading up to the war, and what many people might not understand is that in even in deep South states such as Georgia. If you were to take a poll or, or do studies of voting uh, patterns, of, as scholars have done, you'd find that opinion on secession was was split pretty evenly right up to the eve of, of, of the actual uh, uh, secession of the various states. So this was a, a very tortured and, and, and delicate decision that people had to make about secession. So Lincoln felt that the Union supporters in the South could could help him in terms of undermining uh, Confederate nationalism and, and getting us back to a point uh, to achieve his ultimate goal, at least at the outset of the war, which was to reunify the country. A minor point that I kind of uncovered while I was looking at it, or, or it interested me at any rate, there's some disagreement as to the exact location where the speaker's platform was at the cemetery. Uh, did all three speakers speak from the exact same location that day? Well, the first two did. So, so Everett and Lincoln spoke from the platform, and you're right, there is, there is still some disagreement as to the exact location. There's also been some recent disagreement as to whether or not a lectern uh, was used. There's a, there's a lectern in, in the collection of a historical society in Philadelphia, which is claimed to be the lectern that Lincoln used for the speech, uh, other scholars uh, don't believe there was a lectern, so there, there are still a lot of things that, that we don't know. However, the third major speech, the one of Anderson, was given in the Presbyterian Church uh, down, down the street from, from the cemetery. Okay, yeah, that's what, that's what we, we found. And I think you, just, you described that in the book. In fact, you go to great detail in the book describing exactly the events of that day, and it, it's an excellent read. It's an excellent study of the circumstances going on. Now, the curiosity, Everett's opening remarks were printed one time in a paper, but then they were largely forgotten, but not as much so as Charles Anderson's. They were never actually even recorded or reprinted or anything. They were basically just lost. Uh, did those speeches accomplish their goals in the eyes of the event organizers and and therefore just summarily discarded after the event, or, or what, what was the deal? Sure. The, uh, well, each speech was, was handled a little bit differently that way. Uh, Everett's speech, being the, the featured speech, was actually sent in advance. Lincoln saw the speech before he composed his speech. Uh, it was also sent to the newspapers, the, at least the Union newspapers, in advance. So if you think about the political context of this, uh, the newspapers were the primary political organ of, of uh, reflecting public opinion at the time. So, so Lincoln, uh, excuse me, Everett's speech was was distributed to the papers in advance. It was printed in some Union papers in full, and you can imagine how much space that took up in the paper. So, 
uh, in many of the papers, Lincoln's address was not even printed because, frankly, uh, uh, Everett's speech took up so much room. And, and, and then the chances of having Anderson's speech printed in the papers uh, with Everett's taking up so many column inches was, was, was virtually nil. So there were two, there were two papers, uh, the Springfield Republican and the uh, Cincinnati Commercial, I believe, that printed excerpts of Anderson's speech, uh, no more than 30 to 40 percent of the speech. Uh, and then, the, like you said, the speech was, uh, was never printed in full. And then, in fact, uh, Anderson himself couldn't find the speech uh, years later when he looked for it. The communications back then, we think today of the 24-7 news cycle, cable TV, and in fact, today's newspapers are usually... 36 hours, if not more than that, behind what we already know. Did that uh, lag in communications back then, do you think that played a part in it? No, I don't, I don't think it played a tremendous part. This was, this was a, a well-publicized event. Uh, there was Telegraph, of course, at the time. So uh, the speech was, it would take a long time for the speech, say, to get down to the South, for example. But uh, to the major metro markets in the uh, Northeast and North Central United States, uh, they were able to uh, have reporters at the scene who could, uh, who could telegraph uh, the, uh, their accounts of the speech, at least, at least paraphrasing, and then a couple days later get, get, them, into the, get them into print. So... Uh, no more than a week uh, would elapse without uh, uh, detailed reports, and, and you could get uh, reporters' accounts uh, pretty quickly. Okay. Wanted to do this before the break, but we're going to come back with it when we get on the other side. I want you to tell the folks where they can find your book and more information about you. Folks, we're here this morning with David T. Dixon, and we're talking about his fascinating book, The Lost Gettysburg Address, and we're going to be back with more after these short messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org 
or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. We're here on the prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is David T. Dixon. He has an interesting book, a very fascinating and well-researched book that he calls The Lost Gettysburg Address. It's about a speech given by Charles Anderson. And we've gotten deep enough into it. David, I'd like you to tell the folks where can they find this book? How can they get their hands on a copy and also find out more about you and your work? Sure. Well, I think the easiest way to do that is just to go to my website, and my website is called B-List History, as opposed to A-List History. So B-List History, which is www.davidtdixon.com, and if they simply want to buy the book, they can find it. They can order it either on the website or on Amazon. Okay, so to be clear, the the website actually is your name, davidtdixon.com. And call the website B-List History. That's an interesting take. Uh, tell us a little bit. Explain some of that. There's A-listers and then there's B-listers. That's right. It, so it, the idea for that uh, for that brand, if you will, came about when I tried to market the book to uh, to the major publishing, the major trade publishing houses. And what I found was that most of the trade agents out there are mostly interested in the A-list characters. It's, it's, it's very rare that they would take a risk on someone other than Lincoln, Washington, Robert E. Lee, et cetera. So uh, all of my career I've pretty much focused on the, the lesser-known, more obscure characters that are either connected to important events or have really compelling stories to tell. So... Uh, I guess that's my uh, mission in life is to try to bring these uh, B-list characters to the uh, to the attention of uh, more people. Maybe if you had titled it "Killing Charles Anderson," you might have got more attention. <laughs> yes, one of my one one of my readers suggested that I actually uh, uh, put some kind of scandalous material in the book and and uh, and a romance novel cover on it, and I could probably sell more. But I uh, I decided not to do that. Here. And now, the interesting thing about this man, uh, the name may not be a household word today, but back then he pretty much was. Uh, Charles Anderson had been known since he was young. And in fact, uh, the young Charles Anderson once gave a graduation speech and spoke about the, wa- the monument to George Washington some 50 years before it was built. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yes, well, I think to to really understand Anderson, you you have to go back and and consider where he came from. And uh, he was the youngest son of of another B list uh, Revolutionary War hero by the name of Richard Clough Anderson. And uh, his father was uh, aide de camp to Lafayette, uh, was with Washington uh, when he crossed the Delaware. He was friends with five presidents, so there was. There were a lot of important connections that the Anderson family had uh, from Virginia and then subsequently in Kentucky. Also, uh, Anderson's brother was Robert Anderson, who many more people know because he uh, surrendered Fort Sumter. So at the time, as you mentioned, Doug, in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, this was a very well-known family in in the Ohio Valley and uh Anderson was just one of of a number of accomplished uh, siblings in in this family. 
you mentioned his father, Richard, who, <clears throat> of course, was with George Washington. He was a scout for Washington, wasn't he? Well, he he had many different roles. He served for the uh, he served for the uh, entire breadth of of the Revolutionary War. So he uh, he had many different roles and, and participated in in several of the uh, the more important engagements uh, throughout the war. Okay. But in that particular incident you're referring to, when uh, at the Battle of the First Battle of Trenton, when uh, when uh, Washington crossed the Delaware. Uh, Anderson's party was out scouting in advance the night before, and actually uh, the first engagement of what became that battle uh, happened under uh, under Anderson's uh, command. His father actually is uh, cited as being a witness to the Boston Tea Party, uh, being a friend of Patrick Henry, and of course, as you mentioned, you know, working with George Washington in his trial. Uh, Charles himself, the younger, we mentioned. Uh, the Washington Monument, he knew or was known by John Marshall, who uh, happened to be the head of that committee at that point in time and went on to, to rather distinguish himself, uh, a gentleman named Henry Clay, and an oddity in my mind because of his sympathies. Uh, Charles Anderson's sympathies were definitely with the North, and yet a friend of his, more than an acquaintance, was Robert E. Lee. What can you tell us about that? Well, the the connection with Robert E. Lee goes back to the uh, Mexican War. So uh, Robert E. Lee and Robert Anderson, the brother of Charles, were two of the favorites of, of the commanding uh, general of the American armies for many years, uh, a fellow by the name of General Winfield Scott. So so the, the friendship that developed between those three men, Scott, uh, Robert Anderson, and Robert E. Lee, was... was, was Intimate and long-lasting. So, uh, those uh, Anderson, Charles Anderson's connection with uh, with Robert E. Lee really stems not only from that relationship, but also from the fact that when Anderson moved to Texas in 1859, uh, Robert E. Lee was commanding the U.S. forces in the Department of Texas, and they uh, they became very close friends. Uh, Lee spent many many evenings at uh, at the uh, at the Anderson. I think the importance of that, or at least I hope it is, uh, shows how the divide was so broad. People who had known each other for years, worked with each other, fought side by side, how this war divided this nation uh, so deeply uh, that people like Anderson and Robert E. Lee would find themselves so you know, deeply opposed to each other later in life. Um, the thing about Anderson, his speech from 1863 disappeared. I think we can all agree with that. It, it vanished rather quickly. But he himself did not. He ended up, you mentioned he was in Texas, he ended up in Ohio and became rather influential in politics up there. And in fact, he was a factor uh, with his publication in the presidential election in 1876. You want to tell us briefly what that was all about? Well, yes. Uh, so just to backtrack a little bit, Anderson okay. uh, Anderson moved to Ohio uh, when he was a child. His father, his uh, he was the seventeenth eight, eight, uh, of eighteen children. So his father was was rather elderly when when he was born, and so when his father passed away, he moved with his mother to Ohio and ended up uh, uh, spending most of his life, uh, at least most of his early adult life, in Ohio. So the Really, the, the 
the connection with Ohio politics became uh, strong very early. He served in the Ohio Senate. But uh, Anderson, I think partly because of his unusual background, having spent so much time in the South uh, with a, in a slaveholding family and then spending so much time in the North, uh, really was more of a political independent. He was, he was, he was very, uh, very strongly tied to Henry Clay, as you mentioned earlier. But uh, subsequent to that, he, he would take a position uh, really not aligned with any party just based on his own moral compass. So in the 1876 election that you mentioned, which was a very contentious uh, election that, that went to the House of Representatives and, and resulted uh, in, in, uh, in Benjamin Harrison being, uh, being elected, the Anderson at the last minute uh, wrote an editorial in the, uh, in the uh, newspaper basically uh, supporting the Republican candidate, and uh, he had many had thought he was aligned with the Democrats at the time. So this was a, a kind of a shocking uh, thing to have happen, and, and it surprised a lot of his friends. But uh, but he was uh, he had a reputation for surprising his friends and taking positions of conscience rather than aligning right. with a particular party. He was a man of principle rather than party. So there's That's a lesson right. in there for, for folks today, really. Um, Tell us, real quick before we get into the next break here, real fast, who was Bartley Skinner? Well, Bartley Skinner was the great-grandson of Charles Anderson and had a ranch in Wyoming uh, where uh, one day uh, several cardboard boxes showed up at his house and uh, there were many documents, uh, pretty uh, pretty much an archive of Charles Anderson in those uh, documents, and including in, included in those documents was the... Uh, this law speech. And we have jumped ahead in time now, folks. I apologize for not making that clear. We've jumped ahead uh, 150 some years. We're talking about the early, uh, what was it, 2002, 2003, when this was going on. Uh, That's correct. With Bartley Skinner. Okay. Now, there was a particular ailment that uh, Bartley Skinner had that uh, caused him to ask for some help in determining what these uh, documents actually were. Um, what was his ailment? Well, his his eyesight was failing as he became older. So uh, uh, he had he had befriended a fellow by the name of Rob Tolley, who was uh, was essentially uh, an anthropologist at, at Indiana University. And so when these boxes arrived in the mail, he asked uh, he asked Mr. Tolley to take a look at them. And so once Tolley saw their historical importance, he pretty much took it upon himself to to try to identify these documents catalog them, and then help uh, Mr. Skinner donate them to various uh, archives and libraries across the country. Did Mr. Tolley understand what he had found uh, when he initially looked at these? No, not everything. In fact, the uh, the speech that's, that we're talking about here, Anderson's uh, Gettysburg Address, was actually donated to the Ohio Historical Society before it was identified as uh, as that particular speech. So, no, it wow. took some subsequent research by Tolly to finally figure out that this was indeed the long-lost uh, Gettysburg speech manuscript. Folks, we're here this morning with David T. Dixon. David, tell the people again where they can find out more about you and your book, The Lost Gettysburg Address. 
Sure. I think the easiest way, Doug, is just to go to my website, which is called B-List History, and the web address is www.davidtdixon.com. And that T is a T is in Tom, so davidtdixon.com. And uh, it's, it's a very excellent website. It talks about you as your role as a speaker, educator, and, of course, gives information about your book. And, folks, we are going to be back with more from David T. Dixon here on the prologue after these short messages. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. This is the prologue on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'm here delighted this morning to have our guest David T. Dixon and his book, The Lost Gettysburg Address. We've been learning a little bit about the background of the speech and the writer and how it became lost uh, and then how it became found. But I want to go into a little bit of background about our author here today. Now, David, you are a Texan by birth and educated at least in part in the Northeast. Um, You now live in California. Tell us a little bit about your background. What was childhood like for David Dixon? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been a bit of a nomad uh, throughout my my entire life. So uh, I've lived in 11 cities from Boston to Chicago to New Orleans to Los Angeles. So uh, I, I traveled a lot as, as a child. We moved around a, a number of times. And then um, since I've been an adult, I've, uh, I've been working for 34 years in marketing for Fortune 500 companies. And uh, those uh, various positions have taken me across the country and meet diverse 
peoples and cultures, and and so it's it's really been quite an experience. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I did uh, I did uh, my uh, bachelor's studies, received my BA in political science at the University of California, and then my uh, master's in history at the University of uh, Massachusetts. Okay, and we want to we're going to want to talk about that a little bit because I think that that plays a role in how this book came to be. Uh, but now, as a youngster, you apparently, I'm surprised that you're not in my genre, that you're not into the fiction, because apparently you were a rather creative young man. I read somewhere that you actually convinced a baby sister that she'd been adopted from the fire station. Now, that's, got to be a, that's got to be a good story behind that. Uh, you've, you've dug rather deep into my past, Doug. So, yes, um, yes, that was... Uh, I was a bit of a storyteller when I was young, and uh, we... It is true that I did. I did convince my little sister at one point that she had been adopted from a fire station, and uh, uh, we let that go on for a few days, and, and then it just became too cruel, and we had to uh, we had to come clean with her and tell her the truth. Well, I hope she's recovered from that trauma. That would, <laughs> that would be some. Your interest in history was also established at a really early age. Uh, now, supposedly there was a gift, a certain book from your father. Uh, that got you on this path of history. Elaborate on that a little bit. Tell us what age actually were you, and uh, what was that gift? Sure, sure, Doug. Thanks. I, I was 12 or 13 when my father gave me uh, a book that that really did uh, change my life in some ways. Uh, and the book was called Northwest Passage, and it was written in the uh, I think the late 1930s by a fellow by the name of, of Kenneth Roberts and. Uh, Roberts was really a, a master storyteller who focused on uh, the years leading up to the American Revolution and then the uh, the revolution uh, itself. So, uh, it what I learned from from Roberts, uh, in addition to kindling my interest in history in general, was that um, when you write history, you should you should always focus on being accurate, but if you don't engage your audience and, and provide them with a story that uh, is compelling and that uh, is is fast moving, uh, you risk you risk losing them. So I, I think we in the history profession could do a better job of emulating the, the great uh, historical fiction writers like like Kenneth Roberts and uh, and and focus as much on telling a good story as on uh, presenting. The uh, the facts, yeah. Just the facts sometimes can be very dry, and I think you've accomplished your goal with this book, the Lost Gettysburg Address, in telling a story and laying it out in a manner that keeps the reader interested and drags them through this book. It's one of those page turners that people have a hard time in putting down. Now, you mentioned your distinguished career in marketing, which was sandwiched in between uh, your BA and your MA. Um, did you write at all? When, when did you actually start becoming interested in, in being a writer? Yeah, I, I would say that was probably about 10 years ago. So uh, I finished my master's thesis, which, which was focused on, on union supporters in Civil War Georgia. And as a result of that, I, I was encouraged to to turn some of that material into articles. So uh, I originally approached uh, Dan R- uh, Roper, at, uh, he's the publisher of Georgia Backroads, 
and uh, he and I had some some similar interests in a, a couple of characters that I was writing about, and so he ended up uh, publishing one of my articles, and then subsequently I was published in uh, the Georgia Historical Quarterly and Historical New Hampshire, a number of different journals. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I've developed this friendship with Dan, and uh, while I've had this full time job, uh, which is going to be ending at the end of March. I I've been publishing these articles and it's it's been uh, it's been a really uh, it's been a really fun ride. Uh, if your listeners have not seen Georgia Backroads magazine, it's just a beautifully produced uh, magazine of, of history and, and travel and uh, and beautiful photography. So I'm really happy to to be a regular contributor to uh, to Dan's magazine. Well, you're right on all counts and. Uh... I want to. I have to double down on the Georgia Backroads. My wife and I have been subscribers for many years, back to the what was called originally the North Georgia Journal. <clears throat> but uh, you're you had a, a tragic event that actually brought you to Georgia. You mentioned meeting Dan Roper and seeing his work, but you actually had a tragic event: the death of your father in 1995, that actually brought you back to his former home in Calhoun, Georgia. And uh, there was a real slight mystery going on there around uh, his background, wasn't there? Well, I think there was a mystery as far as uh, the mystery in my own family was concerned. So uh, I think my father, to to perhaps uh, shield his his uh, his children from the real story, had always told us that uh, his mother had died in a car accident. When in in actuality, uh, my father's stepfather had had shot and killed uh, his mother. In 1950, in in Calhoun, Georgia, where 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 they were living, and so uh, when my father passed away at a rather early age, I did take it upon myself to find out the real story and meet some of his old friends. So I did journey to Calhoun, and uh, ended up running into a local attorney in the courthouse where I was researching newspapers uh, and and finding out facts about this shooting, and it's, it's, it's really blossomed into uh, a friendship, and I, I, I do return to Calhoun at least once a year and, and see my dad's old friends. And um, So, yeah, it was, a, it was a tragic event and a, and a family mystery that's, that's, that's turned into a good thing, because after, after his mother was killed, uh, he left uh, Georgia shortly thereafter, uh, never to return, and so uh, it's a great way to make that connection uh, with, my, uh, with my father's old friends. And then the connection again with Dan Roper and the people at Georgia Backroads. Uh, Mr. Roper had actually written a piece about another of your relatives uh, of the Civil War era that, that kind of spurred you two getting together. Uh, and then speeding things up here because of time and so much material here, that while you were working on that Masters, you were sending bits and pieces of your thesis back that were actually published as articles in the Georgia Backroads magazine. Isn't that true? Well, actually, it was it, it was subsequent to to my thesis being completed, but uh, but certainly uh, Dan was working on some uh, Augustus Wright, who was a Union uh, congressman and also a Confederate congressman. So Dan had written an article on Augustus Wright uh, previously, and then when I came out with my article in the Georgia Historical Quarterly, uh, I sent uh, I sent. Uh, advanced copies of that to Dan just to make sure that uh, as an as an expert on Augustus Wright that he was uh, he was good with it and that's really how our our, our relationship started. Okay, it, it's rather coincidental. I know it's strictly a coincidence, but the time frame 
<clears throat> while you're going back to school, working on this master's and, and getting to know these people who are influential in publishing, particularly in Georgia. And Skinner and Mr. Tolley are making their discovery uh, right at about the same time. Uh, isn't that kind of odd how things work out? Yeah, I, that actually that uh, timing coincidence never occurred to me, Doug. So uh, thanks for pointing that out. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was a little bit of a uh, little bit of serendipity thrown into the mix. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the friendships, Daniel Roper, of course, with uh, Georgia Backroads, and also another author who's a frequent contributor there, Dr. William Rawlings. Um, you read something of his that inspired you, you, it's written about you, that it inspired you to attempt a book-length project of your own. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I know uh, William Rawlings has been on your program and and, and was speaking about his, his book. I think it's the uh, uh, A Murder at Ringjaw Bluff, I believe is the title. A, kill- a Killing at Ringjaw Bluff. A Killing, yeah, I'm sorry, A Killing. So, yes, I, I Dan has sent me that book uh, autographed by... Uh, by Mr. Rawlings, and uh, I was sitting at the uh, breakfast table with my wife reading the book, and I read the first chapter of that book, and I turned to my wife and I said, gee, I can't imagine that I could write such beautiful prose as as this first chapter of this book. I, I was just blown away, and here was a fellow like myself who had a day job and uh, was not... Uh, at least trained early in his career academically as a historian, and yet he was writing such uh, such uh, beautiful history. So uh, yeah, so that was that was part of the part of the inspiration for me attempting to take uh, my interest in in publishing articles and 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 try my hand at a at a full length uh, book. And right, let's say a couple of years ago, you actually published that story of the mystery uh, in spring of 2013 in an issue of Georgia Backroads. And folks, if it sounds like we're promoting that, we definitely are. You need, if you're not a subscriber, you need to be. Uh, it's just that good a book, a little quarterly magazine that comes out. But in spring of 2013, you published the story from Calhoun that you call A Murder in Calhoun. And uh, that was a very, very in-depth and it kind of demonstrated your research and your writing ability prior to going into this book. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit. It was a little bit different project because it was more. It was more of a memoir. Uh, it was based factually based, of course, but it was more of a memoir than a straight history. It was uh, more of a catharsis for me after my father dying. I felt like uh, that was really closing the loop on uh, on uh, on that story. All right. We're approaching our final break for the day, and we've got another 15 minutes or so after that in which we want to get uh, uh, David to tell us about a gentleman named Tim Wise and the actual motivation and inspiration that got him involved with the the thought process of Charles Anderson and the motivation for making this book available to you folks and, again, kind of opening the stage, setting the table for a discussion that uh, the country probably needs to have with itself. Again, we're here with David T. Dixon. We're talking about the lost Gettysburg Address, and we will be back after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. 
His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Hello, I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, the voice for patient safety. Now heard every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. right here at AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back again. We're here this morning with David T. Dixon. We're talking about the Lost Gettysburg Address. And, David, uh, tell the folks real quick, before we forget it again, how they can get more information. Where can they go on the Internet to find out more about you and your book? Well, sure. You can visit uh, www.davidtdixon.com. Uh, the website website's called B List History, so you could plug B List History into Google and probably find it that way too. Okay, or you put your name in and it'll come up as well. Now, we've been talking a lot about the background, uh, the history on the man, uh, history about you and how you became a writer. And there was a, an article, a blog that really set you off into looking for Charles Anderson and learning more about him. And it was written by a gentleman named Tim Wise. I don't know if this blog had a particular uh, uh, title to it or what, but tell us what about that blog set you off the way it did. Sure. Well, it, it, as many things in this story uh, transpired, it, this was quite accidental how I happened upon Charles Anderson. I had written uh, several articles on uh, on free blacks, and particularly uh, free blacks in New Hampshire, and so I, I am quite interested in, in the black experience in American history. And Tim Wise writes a blog uh, basically uh, about racism, and he's quite a strident uh, uh, anti-racism advocate, if you will. And in one of his blog postings that I happened upon, he was speaking about various uh, characters in American history who had uh, come out rather strongly in favor of uh, of black rights, and one of the people that he mentioned was Charles Anderson. And, and to make a long story short, Anderson gave a speech in 1849, which was very unusual because he basically point by point dismantled the theory of white Anglo-Saxon supremacy, and, and you can 
read more details in the book, but but essentially he was saying that that there is no such thing as a as a quote unquote Anglo-Saxon race, and furthermore, uh, it's rather preposterous to to think that uh, that of a racial destiny uh, that that societies uh, succeed and fail more based on circumstance and and mere accident of circumstance than they do on race. So I was quite intrigued by this uh, by this uh, this man, so I popped it in an idea file, and about four years later, when I was out of ideas, uh, I, I went back to the file, started searching uh, Anderson, and that's when I found out about this... Uh, this recently discovered speech. And the facts are that he, he actually owned slaves himself in Texas. And uh, did he have an epiphany, or exactly what was his transition? Well, as, as is the case with a lot of uh, folks in, at that time period, uh, attitudes towards, towards race were very complicated. So, so it is true that Anderson not only owned uh, two slaves in in Texas in 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 the 1860 census, but but grew up on a slave uh, plantation. So, uh, however, he was, I would say, he was morally opposed to slavery as Lincoln was, uh, and and also as Lincoln was recognized that at least initially, uh, slavery was was. The corrupt bargain, if you will, that was one of the things that actually held the union together. So I think it's when you when you look at at figures in in this time period, you you have to consider all of the different uh, motivations that they might have. They might abhor slavery uh, on the one hand uh, from a moral perspective, but from a political perspective, they may realize that you that uh, you can't just abolish slavery. Uh, with one broad stroke, because that would lead to uh, disunion and all kinds of other uh, potential negative uh, societal effects. So it w- it w- he had a rather nuanced position. On, on the one hand, like you say, advocating for uh, for uh, black rights and advocating against uh, the doctrine of, of Anglo-Saxon supremacy. But on the other hand, uh, late in his career, he argued that uh, blacks were not yet ready for the the freed blacks were not yet ready for the franchise because they had been uh, placed in a state of ignorance for so long. Your book uh, is a very deep study of this man, his speeches, uh, particularly the one at Gettysburg. Do you consider your book to be a biography of Charles Anderson? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the uh, as a marketing person, I, I would have to say that although there's uh, Three or four chapters, and and, a, and obviously an appendix with the speech. Uh, the speech is ra- is rather the hook for the book, if you will. Uh, the The discovery of the speech is a newsy item, but the but the the real meat of the of the book is a biography of Anderson himself. And as as interesting as it is that there was a a long lost speech discovered, I think the story of Anderson's life has a lot more. Uh, to it than than simply that one event, and that speech is printed in its entirety at the end of the book. Not to give away anything in there, we want you folks to buy this book and read it. But I just want to tell you that it, that speech is there, and then you can uh, kind of experience it and uh, make up your mind for yourself as to what impact that it had. 
are there any parts of Charles Anderson's story that hold relevance today? Uh, oh, definitely. I, I think when you consider uh, when you consider what's going on uh, right now in the country and the, the recent controversies over Confederate uh, monuments and, and battle flags, uh, there's still quite a holdover of, of old myths and, and, and biases and, and, and histories that were written by uh, lost cause historians back in the 1920s and 30s. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of myth-busting, I think, that still needs to be done. So I think when you, when you consider a Southerner supporting the Union and you consider, as I mentioned before, all the different nuances of, of allegiance. I mean, you had, there, there was no monolith of, of Confederate loyalty out there. There were many shades of gray, let's say. You had fire eaters in the tradition of, say, John C. Calhoun. You had sectionalists like Jefferson Davis. You had uh, folks like Robert E. Lee, who really felt like their loyalty was was due to uh, to the state of Virginia first, and then you had cooper- cooperationists like union men that uh, that once the die was cast, they threw their lot in with the Confederacy, and then you had hardcore uh, union men like Anderson, who really considered the union. And this is a quote: "He said it's my only true religion." Uh, so, so he in, in the hierarchy of Loyalty, let's say, uh, loyalty to the Union was paramount. And uh, so you had all these different characters out there in history, each with a different, uh, a different perspective on what loyalty meant. And I, I think that's one of the things that we can learn from, from this book that, that really applies today, is that there's, uh, this, uh, the, the, these aren't black and white issues. These are very complex, nuanced issues. And... Uh, and we need to be sensitive uh, to that, and we need to be sensitive to how these uh, these symbols uh, of Confederate nationalism have been uh, have been perhaps co-opted and and uh, and manipulated to serve uh, far different purposes today. That's that's a deep discussion, uh, perhaps for another day. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there are there are there are very deeply held uh, beliefs on both sides, and and today something else I think that enters into what you touched on might be that uh, there used to be the honor of victory and walking away, and today uh, the younger culture seems to not only want the victory, they want to totally destroy and annihilate their opponent, and. That flavor, is, you know, is not helpful in all things. Um, like I said, sometimes discussions are for other periods of time. You are a practiced public speaker, and you have several prepared topics that groups can choose from. I want to ask you, you're in California. Do you mainly do your public speaking for groups in, in that region, or if properly compensated, do you travel uh, for other folks that might want to have you come and do a presentation? Well, what I what I try to do, I, I I am compensated for certain for certain events, but uh, let's face it, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of organizations out there that really don't have the budget to pay speakers. So what I try to do 
for example, in the back half of 2016, I'm traveling quite a bit outside of California, whereas in the front half of 2016, most, most of my speaking engagements are in California. But what I try to do is I try to bundle these events together and have three, four, or five consecutive days. Uh, and in some cases, uh, part of my travel expenses would be reimbursed. I might get a small uh, honorarium or maybe a, a night in a hotel. Uh, but then in other cases, I, I, would, I would speak uh, uh, at gratis uh, because, because really, like I said, there's a lot of organizations out there that really want to hear, uh, hear about the book and, and, and hear, hear about the, the historical themes but really don't have the budget. And I'm really happy to speak to, to, uh, to any group of people that are, that are interested in uh, in the Civil War, and particularly interested in the Southern Union man's experience in the Civil War, which is which is essentially what this what this book talks about. So, have education, have book, have pro- material, will travel. So you, you <laughs> are right. available. How do they reach you to uh, to find out about all the particulars on you coming to speak to them? Well, again, I think the best way to do is to do that is just to go to my website and. Uh, there is a contact page on my website at www.davidtdixon.com, and uh, there people can uh, can email me directly or fill out the contact form, and I'm happy to get back to them. And, and uh, I have several engagements on my schedule that have uh, that have result that have been the result of of that type of communication. Outstanding. Yes, you've got one particular coming up next month with uh, a sample. On your website, sample questions that you send out ahead of time for folks to look up. And I'll tell you, these are not uh, who's buried in Grant's tomb type questions either. These are very deep uh, things that will cause people to, to re, uh, re-educate themselves. Um, what's in the pipeline? What are you working on now? Well, I really don't have an active project in the pipeline. This was my first book, and so... I really want to build my author platform, uh, get some exposure, uh, network with with the people, both uh, both other historians and also uh, members of the general public that might be interested in my topic. So I, I'm definitely always on the lookout for a great story. Uh, my my expertise obviously is in the Southern Union experience, but all, and also uh, in in Black history, but. Uh, I think I, I think it's more important to find a really compelling story to tell uh, that has not been told, and um, so uh, so when I find that next story, I'll start working on it. But right now, I'm 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 still working on uh, on getting my message out. And you're doing a great job with it. This book is beautiful, folks. It's a hardcover with a real nice jacket, uh, very nicely laid out. Um, for someone who went to college initially to become a baseball announcer, we're very fortunate that you chose this profession, and uh, we thank you for being with us this morning. Well, thanks a lot, Doug. I really enjoyed it. Very good. Folks, again, uh, you have been introduced to David T. Dixon. Uh, his book is The Lost Gettysburg Address. You can find more information about that at www.davidtdixon.com. And Thank you very much for being here and listening to the prologue this morning. If you or anyone that you know of would like to be a guest on a future program, I hope you'll email me at Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or you can use Doug at DougDahlgren.com. 
Now, for myself, Doug Dahlgren, and my guest today, David T. Dixon, I say be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If not one of David's, maybe you'll pick one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.